Have any of you ever had to, to pick or to fix a, a bicycle chain link? Uh, probably many of us have. I know on the farm I fix many small chains like a bicycle, and they always have a, a connector link where you have to find that connector link, take it apart, and then put it back together after you wrap around the sprocket and, and complete the loop by hooking those pieces together. Well, when I grew up on the farm, sometimes my dad had to fix larger chains, much larger, kind of like what you see on the screen there. He had repaired those, and to deal with a chain like that, if he had to create a chain or bind a couple pieces together, he'd begin by cutting the link, and then he would have to twist it apart so that it could be turned, and you'd slip the other chain link together to bring it. Then he'd twist it back so it's aligned, and then weld it shut to create a, a strong bond. The end result was a single strong chain after he bound these pieces together. That's the picture I want us to have in our mind as we come to our passage this evening. We're looking at the final section in Genesis that traces Isaac's life. Um, I said we're looking at the final chapter in the book of Isaac tonight. And, and so turn to Isaac 35, and I was mentioning that, and, people, and when did I say that? I slipped and said, well, I'm in Isaac 35, and they looked at me, huh? Well, we're in Isaac 35, or Genesis 35, the final section of... of the, the life of Isaac, this section in Genesis that traces his life. And, and Isaac's life primarily serves as a link in this book to connect Abraham and Jacob. In fact, really, Jacob is going to be a generational link too. And most of the section that deals with Isaac's life has been stories about Jacob, as we've seen God twist and turn and, and change Jacob so that he could become a strong link in the chain. God has arranged for the promises he gave Abraham to pass to one generation, that was Isaac, and now we've seen those promises pass again to Jacob, the next one that would be the generational link in the chain. Jacob's inherited the promises of Isaac, but it hasn't been a simple inheritance. Remember, Jacob had spent 20 years outside the promised land, all because he tricked his, his father Isaac into blessing him instead of his twin brother Esau, Esau sought to kill Jacob for that. Uh, Jacob fled, and as he was outside the land, he became wealthy. And, and we did watch as he returned. He reconciled to his brother. So there's some aspects of the promise that, that God has, had made originally to Abraham that said your descendants are going to have these number of blessings. Some of those are coming about now in Jacob's generation with the, the wealth and so forth. Some of the promises that, that passed all the way down are coming to fruition, but many of the components remain unfulfilled as we trace our way through Genesis here. Last time when we were in Genesis, we saw Jacob, the one that is to be that next link in the chain after his father Isaac. We saw him and his family become odious to the other inhabitants in the land that God's promised them to, to inherit. This was the result of the sons of Jacob killing all the, the men of an entire town, enslaving the women, enslaving the children, all because the prince of that town had raped their sister. If you recall that passage, there was nothing commendable about anyone in the entire passage. Yet this is coming after Jacob has seen all these blessings of God. So even as God is, is about ready to close off this link and say he's ready to be the next link of the chain, we see there's still some, some trimming that has to be done, some changes. That event and, 
every one of the other events during Jacob's life has been used by God to show that God is faithfully forming his link. He's changing the, the character of Jacob, changing him so that he will become what God has already named him to be, Israel. He'll become the, the future of the nation as the covenantal promises pass from one generation to the next. Tonight, as I've already said, God completes the process of closing off the link that Isaac represents and, and passing fully into the next generation, forming the, the complete chain that, that moves to the next generation of the promised recipients. In this final chapter, Moses gives us a number of very brief episodes in Jacob's life. Again, Jacob is still the center of, of focus. One right after the other is recorded by Moses. And we're going to quickly read our way through the, the different sections and, and comment on each one. But then, as we've done other times, we'll step back and, and we'll try to evaluate what is the overall message that, that God is giving us as he completes this process, this, this closing of the chain link. We begin in chapter 35 with the, the first seven verses that, that come right on the heels of the disaster at Shechem. Shechem is where they killed all the men of the city and, and enslaved the women and children, probably sold them off. We, we don't know what happened then, but we be, pick up right on the heels of that. And as we do, the first thing we have is, is God giving a reminder to Jacob. The, the verses in in chapter 35 are linked to the previous one as continuing narrative. It's in the New American Standard, it's reflected by the word then. These verses come right after. They're tied together. So follow along as I read. Then, this is right after the events that happened. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there with God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. If we flip back to Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, you look there and that's when God called Jacob to return to the land. Jacob had been in, in the pattern Iran up with Laban for, for 20 years, and God called him to return. Hopefully, you recall that when Jacob had promised, or, or that when Jacob had promised when he left the land, when he first fled 20 years later, all the way back in chapter 28, he had promised God that at Bethel, that, that if God brought him safely back to the land, he was fleeing for his life, if God would bring him back here safely, Jacob said, I'll return to this place and worship you, God. Well, if you remember, we mentioned last time that clearly Jacob has been back in the land for quite some time. It was long enough for him to get in that big mess at Shechem, 
But as we looked at that mess, we realized that several years had to pass because when he first arrived back in the land and, and reconciled with Esau, his sons would be at most, his oldest son, 12, years, 12, maybe 13 years old. Well, now his sons were old enough to kill all the men in the city. There's some years that have passed in between that the boys have become young men. So Jacob's been in the land for a while, but he has not fulfilled his vow to worship God at Bethel. That's what God is reminding him of in verse 1. Jacob, you made a vow to me that you've yet to fulfill. Well, Jacob, to his credit, immediately prepares to finally complete his vow. To, to me, Jacob reminds me of myself. Uh, too many times my wife has asked me to do something. And I've told her to do it, I agree, I'll do it. But I get distracted, and it doesn't get done. And some time passes. And she graciously, gently reminds me that I promised I would do something. Well, usually that's the point where I jump up immediately to do it because I'm quite embarrassed that, that I failed to, to do what I'm supposed to do. That's, at least in my mind, how I see Jacob. He jumps up to the task because he realizes, whoops, I failed for years now. I haven't gone to Bethel. So he jumps up, he prepares to go to Bethel and worship. Unfortunately, he has to purify his family first. He has to get rid of the foreign gods that his family has. Now, it's possible that, that the reference there to foreign gods in verse 2 refers to the idols that Rachel, Rachel stole from her father. If you remember when they came back to land, when they were leaving Laban, Rachel stole her father's idols. Sadly, it's probably not only those idols. Um, it's likely that his family has also started collecting other foreign gods through their affiliation with the Canaanites as they spent these years at Shechem. Jacob collects all these false idols and he buries them where they were camped out there at Shechem, where they had made their dwelling place for several years. Possibly, I would say even probably, Moses is including this point to reinforce that the nation of Israel needs to remove all the foreign gods, all the false idols from their midst before they enter the promised land and worship God. Remember, Moses is writing this as the, the young nation is, is traveling from Egypt through the wilderness, coming to the promised land. He's, he's penning these words, or they're not really penning. He didn't have a pen at that time. He's using a stylus and putting them in clay, but he's... he's recording these words for the nation as they're coming there and he's probably reminding them through this record you know just like Jacob had to get rid of the foreign gods before he could worship we must do the same all these gods we collected to go alongside us from Egypt we have to get rid of those if you think they didn't collect any gods just remember they van of the golden calf when they're coming and we remember very well that that Israel the young nation the the tribes they'd collected the, the, the accumulation of ideology of foreign gods from, from Egypt. It is interesting to note that Jacob has a concern from the previous chapter that all the people of land will band together and destroy him because of everything that happened there. He's been concerned about that, but Moses is careful to record in verse 5 that, that God made sure that they were safe. Jacob has no problems traveling through the land because we're told there's a great terror on the people. That the phrase that Moses uses is literally, there is a terror of God on the people of the land. 
Jacob said, remember one of the last things he said? Oh no, now you've made me odious to all these people. Well, God is a terror on those people. The Lord protects Jacob and his family as they travel to worship him. Again, a message embedded in this for the nation of Israel. If you're coming to the promised land and you commit yourselves to worshiping God, you have a protector. God will protect. Jacob arrives here in Bethel in response to God's reminder. And as he does, we come to the first of several deaths that that occur in this chapter. Look at verse 8. Now Deborah... Rebecca's nurse died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Elon Bekuth. So he arrived at Bethel, he worshiped God, and we have this death report. Deborah was Rebecca's maid. Rebecca, of course, was Isaac's wife. That's Jacob's mother, to keep all the players in, in mind. Apparently, somewhere along the way, Deborah, who had been with Isaac, uh, when Rachel was alive, had joined Jacob's family group and is following along with them. That, that indi- suggests at least that there was some interaction between Jacob and Isaac during the, the years he was in the land because Deborah's joined up with his group now rather than wherever Isaac was living. By this point, Deborah is an extremely old woman. If, if you do the math from the numbers that we have at various places in Genesis, she's probably around 180 years old. What's surprising is that her death is recorded. We're not even told that Rebecca died, even though surely she has. If Deborah was here with Jacob, she would not have left her, her charge, Rebecca, if she was still alive. Most likely, Rebecca died at some point, and, and Deborah now joined Jacob. Remember, Jacob was Rebecca's favorite. Still, the only mention we have anywhere in Scripture of Rebecca's death comes in in Genesis 49-31, where it's just told that her burial place is the same place as Isaac. She's buried in the family grave. We're never told that Rebecca, the, the mother of, of the promised seed, is, it has passed, but we're told her nurse dies. We're informed that Becca die, or Deborah dies, and, and we're also told that the place was named to commemorate her burial. Her death apparently represents the end of this older generation. It's significant in that this is that generation passing off the scene. And that's what makes this what I'm calling a sentimental death. It's a sentimental death because that generation is passing away. If we continue the flow of the narrative, in verses 9 through 15, we have God speaking again with, with his confirmation to Jacob. God's confirmation to Jacob. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. 
Now, Jacob already received his new name, Israel. You, you may remember that happened as he was crossing that, that river Jabbok, just as he was around the edge of the promised land. But now God repeats the name, and, and he does it in a manner that's parallel to the way Abraham's name was given to him. Remember, he originally was Abram, and God changed his name to Abraham. That's in Genesis chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. Well, if you look at those verses and you compare the structure of how God says you have a new name, it matches very much here. It's the same way. God. So God is reinforcing that, Jacob, you are following after your grandfather, Abraham, being the recipient of my blessing. God's using that as a sign that the promises that, that were made to Abraham are surely now Jacob's as well. Verse 11 if you look at it, it grabs the original wording of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In Genesis 1, verse 28, when God creates man and woman in his image, he says, be fruitful and multiply, they're to go and fill the earth. Well, that very wording is grabbed here to, to extend to him that the original mandate of mankind is the blessing that God's given is yours, Jacob. You will be fruitful and multiply. The promise of kings in the verse, that, that reaches all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 16. And there, um, God promised Abraham that kings would come from, from Sarah. So God's given him an original creation promise. He's given him uh, a promise made to Abraham. In nations and land, those are also included. Those have been Abraham's promise. Those were passed to Isaac as well. When you put all this together, when you combine it, what God is doing is, is in a very stark manner confirming all the promises that he's previously made really to mankind, and he's passing those to Jacob as the chosen family. These are the same promises that God made to Abraham, the promises that passed to Isaac. They are now Jacob's and Jacob's descendants because they are to, I will give the land to your descendants after you. Jacob is the one who's receiving this confirmation from God, and he responds with actions very similar to his initial response when he met God. Back in chapter 28, when Jacob was fleeing the land, remember that was his first time to become a true God worshiper. God revealed himself to Jacob at Bethel through the, the, the stair step as he saw God interacting with his earth, and Jacob became a true worshiper at that time. Not a perfect worshiper, far from perfect. From 28 on, remember, we've seen all these problems. But he became a worshiper. And, and to commemorate that worship, Jacob had set up a memorial stone and poured oil on it in Genesis 28. Well, now he does it again. The very same response, and once more Jacob calls the place Bethel. In other words, the house of God. That's what Bethel means, the house of God. Having finally fulfilled the vow, it's taken 20 plus who knows how many years. We're probably looking at about 30 years now for Jacob to finally fulfill his vow. He's fulfilled his vow to worship God at Bethel. Well, now having done that, he encounters a second death in the chapter. What I call a sorrowful death. Look at verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Bethel, or Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. 
It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is, the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. We've not been told that, that God blessed uh, Rachel's prayer of, uh, of Genesis 34-24 for another son until the point of his delivery. When, when Rachel gave birth to Joseph, when, when finally her, her barrenness was taken from her and she gave both the birth to Joseph, her prayer was that God would add another to her. Well, apparently God has because here suddenly she gives birth and we hear about it for the first time at birth. This will be Jacob's final son, but it's the first one that's born within the borders of the land. God is, is demonstrating already that you will be fruitful and multiply even within the land. This birth serves as a tangible demonstration of God's favor. His favor has followed them into the land and it's already displaying itself. At the same time, the, the baby's birth is a difficult one. and We're told it brings about Rachel's death. Remember, she is Jacob's favored wife. She's his favored wife, and she's the first one to die in his immediate family. Now, if you stop and think a little bit, you can't help but wonder, is her death a fulfillment of Jacob's own judgment that, that he placed on anyone who stole Laban's idols? It, back in Genesis 31, when Laban pursued Jacob and his family, Jacob, remember, had no knowledge that Rachel had stolen the idols. And in, in verse 32 of that chapter, when Laban accused the family and says, somebody stole my idols, Jacob said, the one with who you find your gods shall not live. He didn't know Rachel had the gods. Is this her punishment? Certainly there's nothing in the text that, that indicates it. All we know is that his favorite wife is the first one of the family to die. What the text focuses on, though, rather than her death, is the naming of the baby. Rachel, as she's about to, to die, she gives the baby one name. It's, it's a name that means son of my sorrow. Some of you probably have that in your margin. Jacob, however, makes a slight play on the, the sound. In, in Hebrew, there's a very close sound between Benoni and Benjamin. And, and he changes the name to Benjamin, and that means the son of my right hand. A, a much more positive name than what Rachel had given. One thing that Moses makes clear in this section is that Ephrath, the place they're, they're heading toward, is clearly the site of Bethlehem. That's where Jacob and his family are heading to settle down. And Moses wants to make sure that, that we understand that this will be Jacob's family's location. They're at Bethlehem. Interjected immediately following the, the statement where the, the, we have this time of, of death, the, the, there's a very brief record of a sinful event. Look at the beginning of verse 22. It came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, I stopped the verse before the end of it, but it's because really why the... Next phrase in the verse is put at the end of 22 and not the beginning of 23 is a mystery to me. Uh, those people who, who divided up the verses uh, along church history, 
I'm not sure why they split it where they did. So clearly the next phrase belongs to the next section. What we have is this record of Reuben. And most likely, this was not strictly a sexual sin. Yes, it was a sexual sin. He, he laid with his father's concubine, uh, who had become his father's wife, Bilhah. But Reuben was probably also likely attempting to prematurely replace his father as the patriarch of the family. Remember, Reuben is the oldest son. He is Leah's first child. So he is the oldest son of, of Jacob. He is the one that rightly would inherit the birthright through normal fashion. But it seems like he's impatient to wait. And, and the reason I say that is because all of us probably know the story of Absalom in Second Samuel chapter 16. Remember when Absalom tried to take the kingdom from his father David, one of the things he did to show that he was taking his father's kingdom away was to sleep with David's concubines. It was a symbolic display of grasping the authority of the father. So not only do we have a sexual sin here, there's probably a grasping of this authority as well. This brief statement serves to explain why Reuben does not receive the birthright. The, the leadership of the developing clan and the nation, it will pass to Judah, who is actually the fourth son. The, the double inheritance that's also part of the birthright, that actually passes to Joseph, the favored son. You know, you 12 tribes, you probably remember there's, when you lift the 12 tribes that settle in Egypt, you don't have a tribe of Joseph. You have Ephraim and Manasseh because Joseph get, gets a double blessing, his, his two boys. So he becomes the, the, the double inheritance, but the eldest son of, of Jacob is passed over. Joseph, the, el, the son of the favored wife, gets a double blessing. The fourth son actually receives the, the right of authority to rule the, the clan. He is the one who will become king. Kings will come from Judah. Well, we saw last week that, or not last week, it was a couple of weeks back when we looked at the previous chapter, sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, are passed over because of the violence at Shechem. Now we know why Reuben is passed over. In fact, notice that in this short verse, we have the phrase of Israel given, or the name Israel given prominence. Jacob was given this name earlier, but frequently Jacob is still referred to as Jacob. But now in this verse, he's called Israel. Moses is emphasizing there are tribal implications to Reuben's crime. The entire nation is affected. Even though Jacob doesn't respond directly to the offense at this time, this offense figures prominently into Jacob's final words in Genesis 49. When Jacob goes through and gives final words to every son, he bypasses Reuben because of this in, in his blessing. This is why Reuben is bypassed both individually and as a tribe. So picking up the, the final phrase then of verse 22, we have the record of God's faithfulness to Jacob. We, we kind of have God doing something, a death. God doing something, a death. Well, here God is doing something again. Now there were 12 sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah, and Issachar and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpha, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. 
Obviously, Moses knows Benjamin was born in, in Canaan, not in Padan Moran, but he's just kind of summarizing things for us here. There, there really is not any new information here. We know all the sons. We know who their mothers are. We've seen them listed at various times. Still, listing the sons out like this, that's really a listing of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, and that serves as, as a final comment on God's promises. God has promised that nations would come from Jacob and Israel. Here is a listing of the beginning of the nations. These were the children that are destined to find their place in the land which they now dwelt. Furthermore, if you think about every man, woman, and child who's traveling with Moses 400 years later when Moses is writing this down and sharing this with the nation, every man, woman, child traveling with him in the wilderness align with one of these 12 tribes. This is God's encapsulating of the nation. It's the confirmation, or the demonstration rather, of his faithfulness to Jacob. And then the chapter closes out with one final death. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kirath Arbar, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Isaac's link in the chain is closed. It's welded shut. His time is complete. With the record of his death in, in verse 29, his, his story is complete. His toledot. Remember, that's that Hebrew word, that word that we normally have translated. These are the generations of. It's the word that starts verse 36. Now, these are the records of generation of Esau. That's the, the marker of the sections in Genesis. Isaac's toledot, his, his generation is complete now. Even though most of the individual stories of this section had been about Jacob, the overall story was that of Isaac's generation. Isaac's generation has passed. Yet before Isaac died, Jacob had returned to him. Isaac could see firsthand that God's promises had passed to the next generation and beyond because Jacob came back with wealth. He came back with 12 sons. He has received the promises. He came back knowing God. Isaac saw all this before he passed. His generation is complete, but the next generation is ready to move forward. This is a significant death. Isaac and his generation have passed, yet God's promises live on. So as we think about the significance of all of this, that, that Isaac's generation is passing, and, and yet God's promises live on, what is the overall lesson that, that we can learn as, as this chapter closes out this link in this generational chain? What we can learn is, is that God continues unfolding his purposes while we experience the challenges of life. Life is filled with challenges, isn't it? But, but God continues unfolding his purposes while we experience the challenges of life. Think back through the items that, that we saw in this chapter. There, there was Jacob's failure to fulfill his commitment to God, to, that failure to worship as he ought. It took God come alongside, giving him a pretty, prompt remi a pretty um, straightforward reminder, Jacob, go do what you promised to do. I'd call that kind of knock upside the head. Um, it took that before Jacob did what he was supposed to do, yet God ensured that his promises would continue unfolding. 
That's a comfort to me, as, as I think about all the times that I fail to follow through on commitments I've made, at least mentally, to God. Sometimes it's commitments I've made verbally to God. Sometimes even commitments I've made publicly to God. I still fail. And it's encouraging that God continues unfolding his purposes, even when the challenges of life distract me from my duty to God. We've also seen sin in this chapter. Out and out sin. We have that event there with Reuben. Yet that did not interfere with God unfolding his purposes either. God keeps unfolding his purposes. What a comfort that is. The challenges of life lead us to sin far more than we want. We, we cannot excuse our sin because of the challenges of life. But we can take comfort that our sin will not hinder the unfolding of God's purposes. Our sinful failures and the sins of others, they will not disrupt the unfolding purposes of God one bit. The chapter also has shown death, quite a bit of death. Death is really, from our perspective, the ultimate disruption. We see death as the most significant intrusion, if the most significant reminder to us that we live in a broken world. Death looms before us as our greatest challenge. And yet we're reminded in this chapter multiple times that even when death intrudes into life, it does not stop the unfolding of God's promises and his purposes. Even death cannot disrupt it. His son, our Savior, the, the one who generations later would be born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah, ensures that God's purposes will unfold. Isaac is the link in the chain of God's promises that ultimately lead to the, our Savior because in this chapter we've seen Bethlehem become a place of promise. We've seen Judah become a tribe of promise, all heading us toward our Savior. So even as death has entered into the picture, that did not disrupt God's purposes at all. God continues unfolding his purposes while we experience all the challenges of life. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be able to celebrate the tr this final truth that you are the God who unfolds your purposes and that nothing disrupts that. Father, we do look at our own lives and we recognize that we live in a world that causes all sorts of challenges. Plus, we add to that our own sinful tendencies that bring all sorts of challenges. And yet, we take great comfort in knowing that our God is unfolding his purposes and that those purposes flow through the, the finished work of Jesus Christ and will bring great glory to your name. We praise you for the work of Christ. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.